Good morning. My name is Debbie. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 24:19 through 22. Whenever you are reaping the harvest of your field and you leave some grain in the field, don't go back and get it. Let it go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows, so that the Lord your God blesses you in all that you do. Similarly, when you beat the olives off your olive trees, don't go back over them twice. Let the leftovers go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. Again, when you pick the grapes of your vineyard, don't pick them over twice. Let the leftovers go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. Remember how you were a slave in Egypt. That's why I am commanding you to do this thing. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Eric. Today's New Testament reading is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call, what is the richness of God's glorious inheritance among believers, and what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working among us believers. This power is conferred by the energy of God's powerful strength. God's power was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and sat him at God's right side in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and angelic power, any power that might be named, not only now, but in the future. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pam. If you're able, please stand for the reading of the gospel. Today's gospel reading is found in Matthew 14, verses 17 to 21. They replied, we have nothing here except five loaves of bread and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves of bread and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, and broke the loaves apart and gave them to the disciples. Then the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate until they were full, and they filled 12 baskets with the leftovers. About 5,000 men plus women and children had eaten. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path today. That as we face whatever is sitting in front of us, as we look to you to guide us through whatever journey we, part of the journey we find ourselves on, would you speak to us? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you remind us of who you are in the midst of whatever, wherever we find ourselves? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's great to see you this morning. Those of you who are here, those of you that are watching online, we love you. We hope that you are doing well. I love movies. 
Uh, more specifically, I love going to the movies, like actually going to the theater and sitting down with popcorn and soda and being immersed in the lights and the sounds of going to the theater. I love the movies so much, I actually love going alone. Uh, I'm an introvert, so it kind of works together of like, I can have some space. So if you're ever at the movie theater, you're like, oh, who's that person sitting all by themselves? You extroverts, that might be me. And I'm very content and very happy sort of in that space. Uh, but my biggest pet peeve, well, maybe my second biggest pet peeve, my first pet peeve is like when people don't put things back where they're supposed to go. Secondly, is when people talk during movies. And not like the, like responding like, oh my gosh, or yelling or clapping. Like, I'm fine with all of that. It's more of the conversational talking that happens in movies. I went with a, to a movie with a friend one time. It was a George Clooney film. And we're sitting there and it's like two minutes into the film. And he leans over to me as George Clooney's character kind of comes on the screen. He's like, who's that? I'm like, do you think he's important? <laughs> It's a Clooney film. It's Clooney. Like he doesn't play part-time sort of roles in these things. What what do you think his role is? I don't know. I'm trying to watch the same film you are. The worst experience I ever had it though was when I was 12 years old and I went and saw Home Alone for the first time. 1990, sitting there so excited to see this film. And I sat down in front of a kid who'd already seen it. And he could not help himself. Oh, this is the moment where the iron falls on his face. Oh, this is the moment where he slips on the ice. I mean, just ruined the entire film as spoiler after spoiler after spoiler was ruined over and over again. Last week, we began a new series through the book of Ruth, a series that we're calling The Outsider. The reason we're calling the series The Outsider is because the main character who the book is named after is an immigrant widow. She's the epitome of an outsider in ancient Near Eastern civilization, particularly in ancient Israel. And yet through her faithfulness, through her faithfulness to God and her faithfulness to her mother-in-law, she becomes the central figure in this story. And not just the central figure in this story, but actually a critical character in the whole story of God. That in her faithfulness, she becomes an ancestor of David and the ancestor of King Jesus. Last week, as we opened this story in Act 1, we were introduced to a man named Elimelech. And Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, they have two sons. They're living in the house of bread, a town called Bethlehem in Judah. But a famine comes upon the land, and so they flee. They run to Moab. And while they're there in Moab, Elimelech dies. But his sons marry, and so there's still hope for the family. But then the sons die. And so now Naomi finds her as a widow who's also lost her two children. And she says to her daughters-in-law that it's time for them to go back to their own households, to their own families. And one of the daughters-in-law, a woman named Orpah, she goes back to her family. But then there's this other daughter-in-law named Ruth who tells her, no, I'm sticking with you. And she travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem, back to the land of Judah. But as they arrive there, things are not the same. Naomi is arriving as an elderly widow. Ruth is arriving as an immigrant, non-Israelite widow. 
They're arriving empty and vulnerable and afraid and wondering what is going to happen next. And then act two begins and we have a little bit of a spoiler alert. It begins with a hint. The narrator lets us into what's going to happen in the story, but he's less explicit than the kids sitting behind me in the theater. He doesn't ruin every moment for us, but instead gives us a little bit of a hint of what's going to happen without unveiling the whole story. And it says this, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, Now Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, Threw her husband from the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Here we're introduced to the other main character of the story, Boaz, and we're told that he's related to Elimelech, to Naomi's deceased husband. And we're told that he is a man of worth. The original language suggests that this actually is two things coming together, that he is a man of means and he's a man of virtue. In other words, he's the kind of person who has the resources to help, and he's the kind of person who would use those resources to help others. And we're told kind of in this simple line that there's hope on the horizon for Ruth and Naomi, that there is hope somewhere out there for them. But Ruth and Naomi don't know it yet. We know it. We're dropped in a little bit of a hint into the story, but they have no clue. This is actually how hope often works in our lives. The hope is on the horizon and we have no clue. That it's a dawn waiting in the darkness. That it's a seed buried in the soil ready to sprout in spring. But we just can't see it yet. It's there and all we see is barren land or a dark night. But in the midst of that, there's actually hope present in some way. Hope is there hiding out. And then we pick up the story with what the characters in the story actually know. Ruth chapter 2 verse 2 says, Ruth the Moabite, continually being reminded of her outsider status, sent to Naomi, let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I might find favor. And Naomi replied to her and said, go my daughter. And so she went and she arrived And she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters and by chance, by chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. The end of chapter one, we learn that when Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. It's sometime in March or April. And so Ruth asks Naomi to, for permission to go out into the fields and to glean. She's come to know about the Israelite practice of not going through their field and harvesting everything that they can, but leaving either the edges or leaving what's left as they go through as a portion for other people to come and glean and harvest and live in sustain off of. So Ruth has become aware of this custom and she says to Naomi, let me go out, let me get to work. And she goes and she gets after it. And by chance, of all the barley fields, in all the towns, in all the worlds, she walks into his. She walks in to Boaz's. And the narrator calls it chance. It's by 
chance. But later in the chapter, when Ruth comes and tells Naomi everything that happens, Naomi hears this story and she breaks out into praise and she blesses God and sees this as an act of God's faithfulness. So which is it? Is it chance? Is it providence? Is it fate? Or is it divine intervention? The book of Ruth says, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. That's what it is. The book of Ruth and so many other places in the scriptures are, are comfortable with the mystery of that. Holding those things together and embracing the mystery of how God works his will out in the world. The, the writers of the Bible, they lived in a God-soaked world. They didn't live in a world where God was distant, but the God was very near. They thought there was a thin veil separating heaven and earth, not some great chasm. And so in the book of Ruth, God never speaks. God never appears. God never directly acts or intervenes in some situation. But the writers see him active behind the scene in everything. You could say that according to the writer of, the God, of, of Ruth, God hides in circumstances. But this is what God does. See, he hides himself in the circumstances of our lives. That everything that we chance upon is actually a chance for God. Everything that we chance upon in life is actually a chance for God to show up and reveal himself in some way to us. What have you happened upon? What did you wake up in, in this morning and go like, how did I end up here? What's the situation you sort of look at and you're like, I'm, I'm not sure how I arrived at this point. I was supposed to go right or I thought I was going right and I ended up left and here I am. What have you stumbled upon? What have you ended up in? And is it possible that God is actually hiding out in that circumstance somehow? That God's actually mysteriously present in that very situation that you're like, I, I don't know how I found myself in this place? And is it possible that God is mysteriously and hiddenly working on your behalf in the midst of that situation or working through you on the behalf of someone else in the midst of the situation that you've found yourself in? We see this by maybe worldview most clearly in the story of Jacob. If you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob had run from his brother and he's out wandering around and heading back toward hopefully a reconciliation with his brother. And the scriptures say he found himself in a certain place. He found himself in a place that had no name. He sort of stumbled on or by chance ended up in this particular place and he grabs a rock and he lays down for the night and at night he has this dream of a ladder and messengers of God descending and descending upon the ladder and he wakes up in the morning and he says, surely God was in this place and I had no idea. I had no clue. How often does that happen for us? That God is actually present And we have no clue. Sometimes we can't see it until two or three or four or five years later. And we look back and we're like, oh, Jesus, there you are. That's where you were at. That's how you were working. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that God causes everything that happens to us. The book of Ruth doesn't say that God caused the famine that hit Judah. 
the book of Ruth does not say that God caused the death of Naomi's husband and her two sons. The book of Ruth and the rest of the scriptures are very comfortable that in this world, we have all kinds of forces at work. That there's human will, that there's God's will, that there's human sin, that there's the fallenness of creation and there are evil forces at play in the world. And somehow in the midst of that, God is working out his will in the midst of those things, but it doesn't mean he's causing everything that happens to us. I don't believe that it was God that caused my dad's addictions. Don't believe it was God that caused my mom's disability. I don't believe it was God that caused my parents' divorce. I don't believe that God caused our marriage crisis. I don't believe that God caused our miscarriage. I don't believe that, ca- that God caused the hurts that we have suffered and endured over the years. I don't believe that God caused the painful and evil things that have happened in your life. I don't believe God caused the abuse that you suffered. I don't believe he caused those things. But I believe he meets us in the middle of all of them. That he is somehow mysteriously present. God does not have to cause something in order to be in it. He doesn't have to cause it to be in it. God has met me in every one of those situations that I've named. He's somehow been mysteriously present, hidden in the circumstances. Surely God is hiding in every place and in every circumstance. And the challenge for us is we just don't see it. God is present and we don't know it. Or at least we do not know it yet. As the story continues, Boaz comes by his field and he notices Ruth and he asks the servants, he's like, hey, who's the new girl? Who's that over there? And the servants begin to tell him the story of Ruth and Naomi and who she is. And so he makes his way over to Ruth and he tells her, hey, keep going. Keep gleaning in this field. And he reassures her, hey, it's safe for you here. I've commanded all of my servants not to harm you. Not only is it safe for you here, but just take water, whatever it is you need. Here's some jugs, go and get a drink whenever you need it. And so she falls down in front of him and asks, why is it that she has found favor in his eyes? And he begins to recount to her everything that he knows to be true about her, about all of her faithfulness, the way that she has been faithful to God and faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then he asks the Lord to reward her for seeking refuge under the Lord's wing. And so she thanks him again for comforting her and for speaking kindly to her and for treating her like one of his servants rather than like an outsider, rather than like a foreigner. And then we pick up the story at mealtime. And at mealtime, at midday, at lunch, Boaz said to her, hey, come over here and eat some of the bread and dip your piece in the vinegar. It's like he's become like an Italian bistro. You know, it's like there's some olive oil and some vinegar, some spices, some fresh baked bread. And she's enjoying that as she's waiting for the next dish to come out. She sat alongside the harvesters and he, Boaz, he serves her from roasted grain and she ate. She was satisfied and 
she had leftovers. <laughs> there was more than enough. And so she got up and she got back to work. And Boaz ordered his young men. He said, let her glean not only after you, but between the bundles. And don't humiliate her. And also, actually go ahead and pull out some of the bales for her. The things you've already harvested and tied up. Go ahead and undo those and let her have some of that as well. And don't scold her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she took it and she threshed it all. And then she gathered all together that she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And she picked it up. She went into town. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. The recognition we're all looking for from our mother-in-law. She saw all that she had done. And she brought it all out, what was left over. And after eating her fill, she gave it to her. Ruth begins the day gleaning what's left over from the field. At midday, she's collecting what's left over from her lunch. And you'll put it in a little Star Wars pail. In the afternoon, Boaz is telling his workers to leave even more over. At the end of the day, she ends up with somewhere between five and eight gallons of barley, 40 to 50 pounds, and her little lunch pail. And she gathers it all up, and she walks into town, and she gives it to Naomi, all of the leftovers. Now, most of us, when we think about leftovers, we tend to think about them negatively. Not everyone. I know there's a few people here that are like, oh, man, leftovers are great. Quick, easy meal for lunch the next day. Most of us are like, ah, I'm not sure. I don't really want that for leftovers. It just doesn't quite taste the same. But some love it. I don't know if anybody loved leftovers more than my grandma Margaret. My grandma loved leftovers so much that she would bring like Ziploc bags and Tupperware to the buffet. We'd be at Golden Corral and she'd go and she'd get her first meal and she'd eat it all. And then grandma would like go back up, go through the line again, bring an abundant plate, sit it down and then pull out her purse. All right, the bread that's going in this Ziploc bag, and I've got Tupperware for those potatoes and those beans, and I'm sitting there as a teenager just mortified. Like, Grandma, you can't do that. (laughs) She's like, oh, this is going to be great. I can eat all week after off of this. But for the rest of us, (laughs) what is left over, we often see as less valuable. It's what's left over is it's discarded or it's despised. We don't want it, but we're fine giving it to the dog. Like, we're just not sure what else we want. And yet throughout the scriptures, we find a God who favors what's left over. A God who actually favors particularly what we leave over. We see this probably most clearly in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That there is one offering in the sacrificial system where the whole thing is burned up. The whole burnt offering. But for most of the offerings that are brought for people into worship in the the temple or the tabernacle, it's actually divided into several parts. There's a part that's burned up and offered to God. There's another part that the worshiper gets to enjoy. 
that they have brought their fattened calf and part of it is offered to the Lord and the rest of it they get to enjoy with their friends and their family. And then there's a third part that's left over for the priests and the orphans and the widows and the immigrants. And it's actually that third piece, the part that's left over for others that God calls most holy. Not the part that's offered to him, not the part that is enjoyed by the worshiper, but the part that's left over for others. Leviticus 2, 3 puts it this way, the rest of the grain offering. Someone comes, takes a handful of grain, burns it up, offers it to the Lord. And the rest of the grain offering, though, belongs to Aaron and his sons as a most holy portion from the Lord's food gifts. The leftovers are described as the most holy In the book of Ruth, we see Boaz leaving things over. And what he left over, he left for two widows. And when he realized who he was leaving it over for, he left even more. Because he realized, oh, this is for Naomi. This is for Ruth. I'm going to leave even more than what is required. He went beyond what the Torah instructed him to do. And not only did he go beyond, but Ruth went beyond. And Naomi suddenly finds herself in abundance. God is always inviting us, the people of God, to leave a portion of his provision for us over as provision for others. He's always inviting us to leave leftovers for someone else. This is actually one of the ordinary ways that we participate in the kingdom of God at work in the world. It's in this simple act of leaving something over. Whether we leave little or we leave much, God takes it and does something beautiful and mysterious with it. God in some way enlarges it. Think about the story from our gospel reading. As Jesus is in front of the crowd and he tells his disciples, we've got to feed everybody. And they're like, we've got nothing. Well, actually, we've got like a couple of fish and some bread. This is all we've got. But they hand it to Jesus. And Jesus takes it, blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And everyone eats and is satisfied. And there are leftovers. He somehow multiplies it. He somehow enlarges it. He somehow does something with it that we could never do. So when we look at our resources, when we look at our schedules, when we look at all the things that God has entrusted to us, has given to us, all of his provision that comes in all different ways to us, when we look at it, the question that we should always be asking is, are we consuming it all ourselves? Or what portion of this can be left over for others? And that portion is actually the most holy portion of it all. It's that portion. So you pick up in verse 19, the story goes on. It says, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you go? It's like big lots in the ancient world. They're coming back 40. Can you imagine her carrying five to eight gallons, 40 to 50 pounds, and that little lunchbox and bringing it all. And Naomi's saying, where did you work How is this possible? May the one who noticed you be blessed. And then she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I worked today is Boaz. 
we were told at the beginning of the story. Ruth found out midway. Naomi's just finding out now. Hope was on the horizon. Naomi had no idea. And then Naomi replied to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord who hasn't abandoned his faithfulness with the living or with the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is one of our close relatives. And not only that, he is one of our redeemers. At the beginning of the chapter, we're let in that little sneak peek, that little spoiler alert that somehow Boaz is related to Elimelech. But now we're told that he's not just a relative, but he is one of their redeemers. He's not only someone who has the means to help and has the character to want to help, but he has a particular role within Israelite society that he has actually been commissioned to help, that he's actually called by God to step into this situation and to bring about redemption for Ruth and Naomi. And part of that redemption feels really weird to us because we don't live in that world. But part of that redemption is producing a child that will actually belong to Ruth's husband. It will be considered his son. Why? So that that family can inherit the land that was left to Elimelech. That they can continue Elimelech's name in the land and they can secure their family's future by living and working off of that land. It would be as if... Ruth's husband was raised from the dead. God's faithful to the living and the dead. This is why Naomi declares that. that The Lord has not abandoned his faithfulness to me who's alive or to my husband and my children who have passed. This is theologically the most substantive statement in the entire book of Ruth. That God has not abandoned his faithfulness to the living or to the dead. What Ruth wants us to see is that God's faithfulness never ends. Even when our life ends, God's faithfulness to us does not end. That he is the God who raises the dead. He is the God who raised his son Jesus. And in time, when he returns, he will raise us. This is why Paul in the New Testament reading says that he prays that we see hope. That we see hope in the horizon. That we see dawn in the dark. That we see the seed in the soil. It's hard to see, but he wants us to have enough light to see hope that's anchored in God's great power. What's God's great power? It's the power to raise the dead. It was at work when he raised Christ. So there is no, nothing that is actually beyond God's ability to reach. His faithfulness knows no bounds. His power knows no bounds. Friends, for us, when we experience life, we oftentimes experience life as a series of losses. Now, this is what life feels like. It's loss upon loss upon loss. And there's some seasons where there seems to be more losses than others. Maybe you just can feel that from the last 19, 20, 21 months of loss upon loss upon loss, compounding in our lives. And when we experience losses, we see them as an end. And at times, in our darkest moments, we believe that those ends are also an end of God's faithfulness to us. We can't see it anymore. 
that the losses mount and we grow bitter or afraid. We grow weary. The grief becomes overwhelming to us and we begin to lose faith. This is exactly where Naomi is at actually at the end of act one. The end of act one, this is what Naomi says is she's welcomed back into her village. She replied to them, she said, don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant or full. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the almighty, that's what he's done to me. He's made me bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? If that earlier statement is the most theologically substantive passage in the whole book of Ruth, this is the most relatable one. You're like, yeah, I've been there. Like, I know what that feels like. To feel like everything has just gone away. To feel like life is slipping out of my hands. To feel like everything is out of control. To know those kinds of losses that make it feel like it's not just the world that against me, but actually God seems to have his face sent against me. This is where Naomi is at and she's being honest about it. And then somewhere in the distance, Ruth happens upon a field. Of all the barley fields and all the towns and all the world. Ruth stumbles into Boaz's field. The dawn begins to break in the darkness. The seed begins to sprout through the soil. Naomi's not aware of it yet, but when she finds out, her bitterness is turned into blessing. She realizes that the Lord has not abandoned her and he is not against her. She suddenly comes to the realization that his faithfulness never ends that it actually extends beyond the grave. And friends, it's not uncommon for us to come into these kind of gatherings at the very place that Naomi is at the end of chapter one. Bitter, scared, afraid, empty, not knowing if God is for us or against us. And yet every week we come to this table, to the table of the Lord, to be reminded of his limitless faithfulness to us. Eucharist is our weekly reminder of resurrection. It's our weekly reminder that God's faithfulness never ends, that it reaches beyond the grave. That God is the one who raises the dead. So no matter how bad something seems, God can actually bring resurrection out of it. Here at the table, we actually get a glimpse of hope, a glimpse of hope that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will also someday raise us from the dead. We also get a glimpse of the God who hides in ordinary things, in ordinary circumstances. As we look at bread and wine, ordinary basic things, and we say somehow God infused this with his presence. And maybe in the midst of my circumstances, whatever they are, God is infusing it with his presence. He didn't cause it, but somehow he's in it. He's present with me. And maybe like Naomi, I can't see it yet. And I find bitterness setting in, but there's hope on the horizon. There is dawn in the dark. There's a seed in the 
soil and someday it's going to sprout back up for us because God hides and does his best work in ordinary ways, in ways that are often easy to miss or easy to mistake, but he's at work and we can see it when we look back. And here, maybe more than anything else, we're reminded that we encounter the God who's left all of himself for us. He's left all of himself over for all of us. That God did not spare his only son. That God is the one who constantly gives all of himself to all of us. Would you bow your heads as we prepare to come to the table this morning? Pastor Evan's going to lead us as we ask the Lord to do those things for us this morning. And take a moment and whatever you feel like the Lord was speaking to you during this time, turn it into a prayer as we come to the table.